I'm Alicia Michalaisa Gonzalez, and welcome to Real Talk, a place where healthcare professionals share stories about their real human experiences working in medicine. Today's story comes from Dr. Amy Zaiden, an emergency medicine doctor in Georgia. Let's begin with a not-so-fun fact about working in healthcare. Surveys show that about one-third, one in three doctors and nurses, have been victims of violence at work. And if you work in healthcare, you know this is true. I have coworkers who've been pushed to the ground, slammed against walls, uh, kicked in the stomach, spit on. I mean, I've personally been called names by patients that I would not dare to repeat out loud on this podcast. And I literally missed getting punched in the nose by a patient by inches thanks to an ED tech who pushed me out of the way just in time. And in response to the frequency of these types of events, there have been efforts in some healthcare systems to develop zero-tolerance policies and better support healthcare employees against these kind of assaults. But that approach is not universal. And even in places where they have these policies, they're not necessarily well-executed or consistently enforced. It's probably safe for me to assume that all of us agree it is never okay for patients to verbally or physically assault us. And we must demand support in ending workplace violence in our hospitals. So how in the world could a hospital not defend the employee? And why wouldn't they call the cops immediately to arrest these offenders or at least get security to physically escort people away when they behave this way? The honest answer is that it's complicated. And when we start to peel off the many layers of this issue, it's not always as black and white as it seems. This is Amy's story. In the emergency department, we're used to dealing with a lot of very challenging situations. And in some respects, I had thought that I had experienced them all. But I had never been assaulted by a patient. So this particular encounter started similar to many other encounters, where I saw um, some nurses coaxing a patient back to their hallway bed. And I uh, looked at the board and realized I had just signed up for this patient. I looked at the chart and saw that this patient was coming in after trespassing and being intoxicated and noticed that two days prior, the same thing had happened. He was seen in our psych emergency department and discharged with a diagnosis of homelessness. And so I went and talked to him and he was very kind but clearly not intoxicated. And I thought he was actually actively psychotic. He had sort of a bizarre behavior and had um, some inappropriate laughter at times. And I was really concerned about him. So I asked him if he had anybody who cared about him who I could contact. And he immediately gave me his mom's phone number. I called his mom and she was amazing. She was kind and she was afraid. And she said her son had schizophrenia and he was not on his medicines, and she was very worried about what would happen to him. She said he recently moved. He was living in a safe place with some friends, but that she was concerned if he didn't get help soon, something bad would happen. She begged me to help him, and then she thanked me over and over again for helping him. So the next four hours were um, a cycle of frustration. The patient was in a hallway spot where his nurse was essentially his one-to-one, And we kind of went through the same cycle where he would get up, he would make his bed and then sort of stare off and then maybe sit back down. But sometimes we would have to 
talk him back and redirect him and ask him to sit down. And he was even as cooperative as to take some oral Haldol. But he really didn't want to get his labs drawn because he was afraid of needles, which is understandable. So unfortunately, we had a lot of delays because our psych had just moved to detention because of coronavirus. And the PES area that night was really busy. And so there were a lot of delays in getting him to see a psychiatrist and actually moving him to a different spot. And every time that he sort of got up and we redirected him, he would sit back down. But I couldn't help but think in the back of my mind, and we even discussed this um, together with the nurse, that if he were to leave, he would be a threat to himself or somebody else and something bad could potentially happen to him especially thinking about how we criminalize psych behavior in our society. I was concerned that he would end up in jail without getting appropriate treatment for his psychiatric disorder. And a sentence like that could really, I think, destroy his life. And I even said that to him at one point, and and he didn't really disagree with me. So finally, after many delays, I think we had reached a point with him where he was just, he just lost his patience. He was frustrated. And he, like many other times, got up and made his bed and then kept walking. And like we had done before, we followed him. We called for security. We tried to de-escalate, but none of it really seemed to work. And he kept walking further than he had walked before. And I think because the nurse and I had tried so hard that night, we felt like it was a failure if we let him go. So we kept walking and we followed him. We got to a point where it started to feel a little bit uncomfortable because we were now outside of the emergency department in a hallway. And the nurse was a few feet ahead of me. She was going to get help to get security. And shockingly, the patient then turned and started hitting me in the head. I remember feeling shocked, but also feeling actually kind of embarrassed because I had gone to a self-defense class a few years ago, so I should know how to handle this. And this self-defense class, I actually went to with my co-residents. And we thought that we would become really, you know, 10 times stronger. We would learn all of these defensive moves so that we would never, you know, be attacked and we could defend ourselves. But the whole class was about avoiding the situation. And so I had failed. I felt I I was in the situation. Um, But they did teach us that The second thing is to call for help. So I called for help. I screamed as loud as I could. And very shortly after that, a mob of 30 people came running towards me. And I I was still confused because my glasses had come off and I can't see anything without my glasses. And so I still didn't really know what was happening. Um, But fortunately, somebody found them and gave them to me and then directed me to this uh, room I had never been to before and handed me a piece of paper. And I I felt, I thought it was an incident report to fill out, but it was actually um, a legal report to press charges. And to me, it was almost comical because I had tried so hard to avoid that very thing for him. I was worried if he left, that's exactly what would happen to him. And so I just felt like it was really wrong. And I thought even about calling his mom and having to say, hey, your son hit me when I was trying to help him and now I'm pressing charges and I just, I just couldn't do that. So shortly after that, I went back to the zones 
where I was greeted by very supportive residents and faculty. Elliot had offered to be my personal security guard indefinitely. And as many of you know, his Peloton stats are really good um, and he's scrappy, but, you know, not a sustainable solution. And I saw George wearing his hockey helmet for coronavirus protection. And I thought, I made fun of that stupid helmet all night and I wish I would have been wearing it. But in reality, we shouldn't have to have a bodyguard or a hockey helmet at work to protect ourselves. I've noticed since this happened that I definitely have a lot more anxiety at work in certain situations. I'm quick to leave a room if I sense a patient's becoming angry. I can feel my heart racing. I can feel myself becoming uncomfortable. And oftentimes I do just step out of the room. I'm quick to call security, even if, you know, the threshold of violence is so low. Um, And I'm very hesitant about seeing patients with flags on their chart, which is all sort of sad to me. So I think about this a lot, and I really struggle to find an answer. It is clearly not okay to assault a healthcare worker. And the reality is our patients are justifiably angry. We live in a very violent society where structural violence is the norm. And for me, in theory, the hospital is actually the only place where I may be exposed to violence. But for many of our patients, they don't have that luxury. So this puts us in a really challenging position, especially knowing what to do in the future. And I wish I had the answer to tell all of you, and I wish I had the magical solution, but I don't. I think that it's never okay for you to be hurt at work. And I think every situation is different. And I don't, I don't want to say just because I didn't press charges that nobody should. There may be a time where that's okay. And my response doesn't have to be what your response would be. Um, I think it's very situationally specific. So I think um, as I struggled to sort of debrief and think through these things, there are definitely a few things I do now. Um, I'm, I'm much quicker to give patients antipsychotics, you know, even though in this case we had, and I'm much quicker to call security. And I think they probably think I'm crazy now because oftentimes I ask for eight people to come in in situations that, you know, nothing actually happens at the end. And I have a lot of situational awareness. So I commonly look around to see who's around me, who I'm working with. Um, last night, it was great. Michael was the attending. I knew that if he just stayed around me, I'd probably be fine. But again, all of those things are not, you know, not things that we should have to think about. So I don't want to be afraid at work, and I don't think we should have to be. And I hope that sharing my experience will give everyone else time to reflect and to think about how we can avoid and approach situations like this in the future. Amy was right to feel compassion for her patient, to worry for his safety, to be concerned about his mother and his family. Patients with psychosis have a genuinely different perception of reality and a disease process that is notoriously difficult to control because the patient often does not understand that they are psychotic. They don't believe that they need treatment or medication. They lack insight into their disease. And in fact, sometimes they believe the people trying to help them are trying to poison them or do them harm. It's tough enough for these patients in hospitals where we're experienced with treating acute psychotic episodes, but 
outside our walls, these patients often face much more danger. They're alone in our already tough world without an accurate perception of what's happening around them. And sometimes that means they end up getting hurt or taken advantage of, exposed to drugs or violence. They end up homeless, and because of their often erratic behavior, sometimes they end up arrested. It's a conversation in and of itself whether these patients should be prosecuted for their behavior in general, but more specifically, What should happen when that erratic behavior occurs while these patients are under our care? Certainly, we cannot be okay with healthcare workers being assaulted under any circumstance. But do we press charges when we know this is not somebody with a normal experience of reality? Imagine a man with uncontrolled schizophrenia standing in front of a judge charged for hitting an emergency medicine doctor in the head repeatedly. What happens to him? Who would be there to represent him? Who would advocate on his behalf that this was a medically complex and unfortunate man and not a violent criminal? I don't think any of us believe that this man would not end up serving time in prison. And what if I told you that the patient in Amy's story was black? We know the criminal justice system is already harsher on minorities compared to their white counterparts. And statistically, white Americans tend to have better access to healthcare in general. So is allowing the prison system to deal with uncontrolled psychiatric patients just another way that we're perpetuating health disparities and racial inequity? Regardless of the color of his skin, the reality is that time in prison is the last thing this patient actually needs. What he needs is efficient access to quality psychiatric care. And that is just something that we do not have enough of in this country. And so naturally, the conundrum continues. Amy's story raises so many interesting questions about dealing with violence in the healthcare setting. And like her, I don't claim to have all the answers to this incredibly complex problem. And I'm also not pretending that the answer can be easily inspired through some introspective podcast monologue. But I do know that using the criminal justice system to treat our country's mental health crisis is not the winning recipe for success. I also know that sometimes, to start making progress, the first step is to consciously and intentionally do better with what we have, even if that seems tiny or limited compared to the full scope of the problem. For instance, We as frontline healthcare teams can at least do our part to help cases like Amy's not happen on our watch, to do formal de-escalation training with our security, nursing, and doctor teams, to make it standard of care for patients like Amy's to receive calming and antipsychotic medications immediately upon arriving to our ERs. We can talk to our administrators about opening crisis stabilization or empath units to quickly get these patients into better healing, more human-centered environments rather than sentencing them to hours and hours of isolation in the dimly lit back hallways of our emergency rooms. At her hospital in Georgia, Amy shared her story to create a space for her team to talk about these types of goals, things they could do practically to prevent and deal with these situations when they occur and to open the conversation about what the consequences of violence in healthcare should be without a one-size-fits-all solution. And there's no reason that all of us can't do that too. Thank you to Amy Zayden for sharing her story with us, to Marco Gonzalez, our sound engineer, and to all of you 
for listening. I'm Alicia, and this is Real Talk. Want to connect with the Real Talk podcast or record your story with us? Start at realtalk.transistor.fm or you can follow the link in the show notes for this episode.